History is not filled with stories of people who in majority live in peace and prosperity, where worldly forces are held accountable to righteousness. Instead, history is filled with peoples that were ruled by minority bands of tyrants who inflicted misery on the masses. It is a rare and noble thing for a people to be so invigorated by vision of the common good that they rise above the frailties of fallen creation. It is a scarce happening for a people to bind themselves together in principled virtue for the strict purpose of building up their world. It is rare because human nature is fallen, and individuals are neither basically good nor naturally inclined to go out of their way to dissolve evil. Despite this certain fact, it is possible for a society to achieve rare status in history as a beacon of goodness and beauty. Yet, such a precious victory is not achieved by accident. A righteous society of goodness and beauty can only be achieved through providence and grace, where people have consecrated their hearts and minds to God, to the one whose hands hold their very breath of life, along with all the great elements of nature. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and this is our study of Nehemiah 4, as we're going through the whole book of Nehemiah. Let's open up in prayer, and then we'll jump right into our scripture. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask that you come, open up our hearts and minds that we could receive your wisdom, strength, encouragement, and eyes and ears to see and hear the world as you intend for us. Let us not be distracted by the frailties of fallen creation, but let us be invigorated with the strong backbone to be a crusader for your holy mission, Lord. Lord, as we look to our world and its many distractions, let us see clearly. Let us be able to communicate this earth with the great path that is the way of life. Let us not be distracted from a port here or there, but let us make a communication from where we are now towards your great kingdom. Lord, we ask that you be with each and every one of us. Open our hearts and minds, and we ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's jump right into Nehemiah 4, shall we? Now, when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he mocked the Jews. And in verse 2, he gathered his associates together, and he said in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn stones at that? And then in verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, that stone wall they are building, if any fox were to go upon it, it would break down. And then I, Nehemiah, in verse 4, I said, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their taunt back on their own heads and give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have hurled insults in the face of the builders. And what you see happening there in verse 4 and 5 is that Nehemiah recognizes Sanballat and Tobiah. They're not just mere enemies of Nehemiah. They have arrogantly taken it upon themselves to be enemies of God. They're enemies of God and his holy principles. Sambalot and Tobiah, they're not mocking Nehemiah and his workers because they hate this former cupbearer. No, they're mocking him because they hate that someone will bring the holy principles of God back into the public sphere. You see, throughout human history, people are supposed to play the game of just let the elites and the experts run things. You know, there is the Overton window that is the public sphere. Only play those games. You know, Nehemiah, you're a cupbearer. You're supposed to be forgotten. Wait on someone who's a construction worker. Wait on somebody who's led an army to come back and revive Jerusalem. And Nehemiah says no to it all. You know, going back earlier in this chapter, when Nehemiah first makes that crossing down towards Jerusalem, when Sanballat and Tobiah first see him, they hate him. 
and they hate him because someone has come to break the rules. Someone is breaking the world's game. They're going out of bounds to care for the welfare of the people of God. And Nehemiah is not doing this on technicality, saying, well, we need a wall for this, or this will be our good insurance policy. No, Nehemiah comes along and says, it is shameful to live this way, and we are going to rise above it. Nehemiah remembered that his God was holy, and therefore Nehemiah should be holy. And on the basis of holy principles, saying God is a God of excellence and achievement, we will be a people of excellence and achievement. Nehemiah comes to restore Jerusalem so that it can be the chosen city of God, truly living out as the people of God, where none may live in shame. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I love what happens here in verse 6. He hears all these taunts. He hears all of these accusations thrown against him. And what does Nehemiah do? Well, let's read verse 6 and find out. In verse 6, Nehemiah says the following. So we rebuilt the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. What you found in that verse is that Nehemiah doesn't care. He does not care what they say. And there's great liberty in finding freedom when you do not care for what people say. The people who have made it their mission to be enemies of God don't wait for their approval. Christ-like love doesn't mean that we want the approval and the relevance that comes with having a seat at the table that shakes its fist at God. You know, if that's what people have assembled themselves together to do, they've got their table set up there, the worldly table where they're all going to shake their fist at God, don't want their approval. Christ-like love means you want to pull people out of that, not have entry and access into that. Picking back up in verse 7, when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And so we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And it's fascinating because the enemies of God, they know that confusion is something which can be very destructive. If people don't have meaning in life, if they don't have clear truths, if they don't have a clear understanding of what good is, what is good and what is evil, then they will be faulty. They will be heavily um, handicapped in the pursuit of their work. But what we find going on here is that Nehemiah, he is not distracted by any of this. He's not confused. He's not going to get easily confused because he doesn't care what they say. And he's not watching what comes out of their mouths so much as he's watching their fruits and their actions. And this is going to be something which comes up later in our message today. But what you find here in these verses 7 through 9 is that Nehemiah, he's watching their actions. He's not caring about the taunts. He's not trying to get them to like him. But he notices that they're plotting together and they're trying to come and bring confusion. This is the fruits of their mentality. And he watches that more than he pays attention to the words coming out of their mouth. And so what does he do? Well, like Nehemiah always does, he first prays to God and then he sets a guard. He gets strapped. He realizes that this is a battle of belief systems and it's going to be a battle to the death. So he prepares for this. In verse 10, but Judah said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing and there's too much rubbish that we might find. We are unable to work on the wall. And in verse 11, Nehemiah says, you know, in our enemies, they said, they will not know or see anything before we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. And then Nehemiah looks around and he sees that when the Jews who lived near came to them and they said to us 10 times, they said, from all the places where they live, they will come up against us. And so I looked 
In the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open places, there I found and I stationed the people according to their families. I set them up with swords, with spears and bows. And after I looked these things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You are fighting for your kin, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And what is fascinating about Nehemiah's statement there in verse 14 is it's reminiscent of something throughout the Old Testament. You find it really first being introduced when Jethro comes to Moses in Exodus 18.21, where he says, Find those who fear God, they're trustworthy, and they hate dishonest gain. But there is this threefold principle you find in the Old Testament where people are told, first, remember God. You fear him and you are loyal to him alone. Secondly, you're trustworthy and righteous before God and you are loyal to his principles and virtues. And thirdly, do not be afraid, do not be hesitant, do not be reluctant to go out into the world and fight against the enemies of God. You find that, you find that same sentiment running through the veins of Nehemiah. He's, he's been injected with that old and ancient wisdom that has been with the people of God that says, we fear God and God alone, remember the Lord, and on that principle, go out, be trustworthy to his cause, and dissolve the evils that are trying to take over our world. And it's very powerful. It's, it's a very powerful thing. And another thing that's fascinating about this text is Nehemiah, he understands really what the people of God were meant to be. It's so fascinating to me. I know in the third chapter of Nehemiah, I, I connected that list of names all the way to the throne room there in heaven that you find in Revelation 4 and all the way back to the garden where God calls Adam and Eve to be his servants. And then you get to the day of Pentecost where the people are holding things together in common. What we find here is Nehemiah is truly seeing the full spectrum of what it means to be the people of God. He sets up families together, realizing that this is an integral part of the design of humanity. Fight for your families. Get your families together. Get them strapped because what we are up against wants to destroy us. And all great evils throughout history always want to destroy the family. You hear a lot of talk in the modern day and age that there is an interest in dissolving the nuclear family. And it's being quite vicious in wanting to do this. It makes people easy prey to be consumed when that happens. And what we find happening here is another version of that throughout history. But it's not victorious because there's a man who steps up to the plate of being a man. This former cupbearer Nehemiah, he steps up to the plate and he leads his people with a great and noble vision. And it's not his vision. It comes from God. Let's get back to verse 15. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that their plot was known to us and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the swords, the bows, and body armor. And the leaders posted themselves behind the whole house of Judah, who were building the wall. The burden barriers, they carried their loads in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and in the other hand held a weapon. And that's where you get that great image there. Those who are actually bearing the burden. In one hand, they have a sword, and in the other hand, they have a trowel. They're doing the work. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work, it is great and widely spread out, and we are separated far from one another around the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us at that spot. 
our God will fight for us. And so we labored at the work. And half of them, they held out their spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night inside Jerusalem, so that he may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. And so neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me ever took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. They all hold together. And there at the end, you find that they're not even taking their clothes off unless it's absolutely necessary that they bathe. They hold together for the common good. And it's not some sort of desperate thing which wants to reduce people down to their lowest common denominator, but this is something which is aspirational. It challenges people to go beyond their limits. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, as I said earlier, history is not filled with stories of people who in majority live in peace and prosperity, where worldly forces are held accountable to righteousness. Instead, history is filled with peoples that were ruled by minority bands of tyrants who inflicted misery on the masses. It is a rare and noble thing for a people to be so invigorated by vision of the common good that they rise above the frailties of fallen creation. It is a scarce happening for a people to bind themselves together in principled virtue of the strict purpose of building up their world. It is rare because human nature has fallen and individuals are neither basically good nor naturally inclined to go out of their way to dissolve evil. Despite this certainty, there is a possible way for a society to achieve rare status in history as a beacon of goodness and beauty. Yet, such a precious victory is not achieved by accident. A righteous society of goodness and beauty can only be achieved through providence and grace, where people have consecrated their hearts and minds to God, to the one who holds in his hands their very breath of life, with all the other great elements of nature. And as we look to Nehemiah 4, we see a noble society being constructed. In a noble society, it can only be found when its citizens take it upon themselves to remember their God. And as crusaders for their God, they are moved to build up their world for the sake of their brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. A noble society cannot be sustained by laws alone. And this is something which Jesus firmly taught us. A noble society cannot be sustained by laws alone. Why? Because laws can be corrupted by the lawless. And the children of darkness will not be confined by the boundaries that restrain the children of light. This is a lesson that we do well to appreciate and apply to our lives. History teaches us that injustices are common in our terrestrial domain, and there are many who have lived and died on this earth without ever being held accountable for their wicked deeds. And one of the most frustrating things we can witness in this life is how wicked people get away with their terrible schemes. There are those who bear false witness in the public sphere, promulgating scams in broad daylight without any consequences for their destructive actions. History does not teach us that the wicked are frequently held accountable. Instead, what we learn from Scripture is that worldly justice is almost non-existent. And that perfect justice, you know, real perfect justice, that is one of the beautiful gifts of God. If we desire accountability on this earth, if we want to see clearly and understand the right courses of action in response to evil, then we must set our eyes on the straight and narrow pathway that communicates with the throne of heaven. So how do we find the straight and narrow communication with heaven? How do we make good on our innate calling as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve 
as those designed to loyally serve God as his chief ambassadors of righteous order? Well, the answer to that question is both simple and extraordinary. We must be a people who stand firm on the principles of God and against the destructive forces of evil. It is simple in the sense that we can surmise this pathway as the way of life. It is the transformed Christian life where we are fully living in service to Christ our Lord. Yet, it is extraordinary for it cannot be achieved by human power alone. And the depravity of sin is constantly trying to confuse and debase us from sound footing as we navigate the snares of this life. One of the things that we must realize and must come to terms with is that evil will not and cannot be held accountable by worldly laws and technicalities. You cannot wait on worldly institutions to have virtuous courage for you. If one wants to stand firm against evil, they must remember their God and be willing to be a crusader for their God. Nehemiah and his fellow workers, they will fail in their mission if they do not remember their God. And their aspirations of holiness will once again be replaced with shame and desolation. And as we look at Nehemiah 4, there are two chief tactics for combating evil that we can see exemplified. One is to not care about the words that come out of the mouths of your enemies. And you know, that, that really is a very, very powerful tactic. Do not care about the words that come out of the mouths of your enemies. And we in the modern day and age, we really need to learn this. The second chief tactic that we learned from this chapter is to hold evil accountable to righteous principles rather than worldly laws. Now we're going to discuss both of these, but a little bit out of order because we're going to talk about the second one and then we will return to the first. Regarding the, the discussion of holding evil accountable to principles rather than worldly laws is something we must realize. A few years ago, there was a theological professor who was fired after having an affair with a student. And, you know, you may look at this and say it seems good to remove a professor who clearly broke a code of conduct. But the tragic truth is that this man should have been fired long before he ever had an opportunity to indulge in this sin. He should have been fired based on the beliefs that he was teaching. Because there were clear signs that the man was not advancing biblical morality. And yet, he was only ever held accountable for breaking a code rather than the you know, content and the beliefs that he was teaching. He was allowed to plant unholy seeds into an entire generation of clergy without any principal consequence. And rather than being held accountable on the basis of virtue, this man, he was only ever held accountable by codes and technicalities. And this methodology, it is insufficient to hold a society together. And our civilization has reached a state of decay where civil pathways will no longer permit righteous accountability. A couple of years ago, my family took a trip to the Grand Canyon. And my dad, he kind of walked further down towards the Grand Canyon than the rest of us did. And he saw a sign there that said, do not go beyond this sign unless you have two bottles of water. And now that sign had been placed there because so many people had actually, you know, died going beyond that, that sign. If you don't have two bottles of water, you're not going to be able to make it out. Well, our society has gone past that sign. There's no more bottles of water. You can't hold stuff accountable with codes and technicalities. The infection that is in our culture has gone so widespread. We have had so many professors, so many come to corrupt our laws, our lawmakers. We have had so many people come and corrupt our institutions that have brought up entire generations corrupted by bad ways of thinking that you, cannot, you can no longer hold any of this um, righteously accountable. Civil pathways will not permit it.
And when you hear me talking about all of this, you might be worried about using this tactic, and it's the tactic of holding people accountable to principles rather than laws. And you might be worried about this because it cannot be written down in the way that a law can. And you are right to be worried about this because such a standard, it requires risk, and such a standard can only be upheld by a moral and religious people. This can only be achieved through a common vision of good and evil, where Christians, they are transformed as individuals, not where governments are forcing down beliefs on people, but where individuals have taken up the onerous responsibility to sort out their faith personally and there within their local church community where they as individuals sincerely want to be morally and religious. This can only be achieved through a common vision of the good, the standard of holding people accountable to principles rather than laws. It requires a transformed people where Christ has brought them out of sin and instructed them to be born again and enabled and given them the new life where they are born again creatures with eyes and ears that see the world as God intended. Revival and sustained spiritual health is necessary for a moral and religious people to thrive. And we must have resolute conviction, not on the shallow interpretations of laws, but on the eternal virtues of God that undergird all good laws. We're going to have to go back closer to the source of the stream in order to hold evil accountable. Laws and things of that nature, they are downstream from principles. And if you get yourself wrapped up in just in the laws and the technicality and the semantics of it all, you're going to find yourself confused, and Sanballat and Tobiah will win. One of their goals is to have you confused because they know that will facilitate their victory and your destruction. When we look at our world right now, there is an infection in our world that wants to tear down our civilization. There is an idolatrous spirit, the idolatrous God of this age. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it is here and it is among us. And this idolatrous spirit, it has taken possession of our culture and infected all of our institutions with the singular purpose of reducing our culture to just another desolate nation of history. We have to realize that societies do not naturally exist as forces for good, and they cannot be brought, be brought to goodness by laws, technicality, and civil means alone. Instead, societies can only be forces for good when they have the holy principles of God undergirding their foundation. And do not kid yourself. The idolatrous spirit possessing our culture has arrogantly made a chief study out of removing God from the hearts and minds of our neighbors. Sanballat and Tobiah know that the walls, they will crumble and fail if the workers forget their God. And this idolatrous spirit affecting our culture, it knows that our nation will fall if it does not remember our God. In America, we have to get back to principles and acknowledge the fact that there is actually a thought that stops all other thought. Not all thoughts are equally good and not all voices are equally interested in truth. There is a thought that stops all other thought and that is the, the thought that must be stopped. And I know that's a bit of a tongue twister. Back when G.K. Chesterton was asserting this about a hundred years ago, he was correct. There is a thought that stops all other thought and that is the thought that must be stopped. Just as one generation can end all future generations by jumping into the sea without having any children, so one generation can destroy all future thinking by teaching our children that there is no absolute truth, that there is no reason, there is no meaning in anything, and that there is no absolute morality to live by. In our society, it has degraded to a level where lawmakers and courts are not interested in truth. And we have to acknowledge this. We don't pay attention to what comes out of their mouths, but weigh their fruits, and you will see that this is clearly the case. One can only fight the enemies of God if they are standing on holy principles. 
and you cannot step down from holy principles, and you cannot confuse holy principles with worldly laws and technicalities. The workers in Nehemiah 4, they are crusaders on a mission for God, and they will fail if they ever forget the spiritual nature of their mission. In Nehemiah, he firmly reminded his workers there in verse 14 of their priority, and he assured them by saying, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your kin, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And you know, that really is a very particular statement, and it's reminiscent of a theme found throughout the Old Testament. Righteous and holy people, they should fear God, and remembering that it is He alone that they should serve and He alone that they should fear. They should be loyally righteous to God and His noble virtues, and they must be willing to go out of their way to fight the evils of this world. Jethro, back in Exodus chapter 18, you know, Moses' father-in-law Jethro, Jethro articulated this standard for holy living to Moses. And this standard, though it is introduced by Jethro there in Exodus 18.21, it is one that is found in one form or another throughout the Old Testament. And here in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, you find that same theme being articulated. And now let us change gears and return to the first tactic exemplified in this chapter. Nehemiah does not care what comes out of the mouths of Sambalot and Tobiah. He doesn't. Nehemiah doesn't care what Sambalot and Tobiah say about him or his work. And there is a great lesson that we can learn from this. Name-calling and dishonest taunts have no power over Nehemiah. Nehemiah understands that people are not basically good, but instead are sinful. Sambalot and Tobiah do not hate Nehemiah for who he is. But instead, they hate him for the holy principles of God on which he stands. Sanballat and Tobiah, they are not mere enemies of Nehemiah, but instead they are sinners who have arrogantly decided to make themselves enemies of God. In Sanballat and Tobiah, they will win if Nehemiah surrenders power to them. They will. If Nehemiah starts caring or giving too much time to their taunts, he will fail. If he starts wondering why they hate him or spending too much time worried about that, he will fail. Nehemiah has to be the man that within one verse says, God, hold them accountable. But in the next verse, he says, I'm done. Turn around, build the wall. We ourselves, we cannot spend our time waiting for the approval of people who shake their fists at God. We have to turn around and say, no, build up the kingdom. If Nehemiah and his workers forget that their work is done in service for their God, they will fail. Nehemiah, he doesn't care what comes out of the mouths of the enemies of God. But instead, he carefully watches their fruits and keeps strapped with a sword. And if we are to enjoy revival in this time of spiritual warfare, then we are going to have to stop caring about the words that come out of the destructive mouths in our world. Jesus instructs us to love one another as he loved us. And Christ-like loves demands a deeper worldview that looks to the soul and not merely to the words coming out of the mouth. In fact, when Jesus warns us about false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing, in Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing by being inwardly ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. What we learn from Jesus' instruction there in the Sermon on the Mount is that wicked people will lie. They will quote scripture, just as the devil does in the wilderness. Yet, you can discern them not by listening to their words, not by listening to what their stated agenda is, not by listening to what they named their organization, but look at their fruits. Look to something deeper. That is how you actually make the distinction between those who are honest and those who are disingenuous. 
You look at their fruits. You do not pay attention to the words coming out of their mouths. And we can discern those who are wolves in sheep's clothing by examining their fruits across time. And that's why it's so important for us to understand that time is a thing. You can get wrapped up with just what comes out of people's mouths if you don't believe in time. So many times we're told, well, this is what we're wanting to do. Wait around to see. But you're not allowed to wait around and see. You're instead just told next time they have a new name, a new organization, a new stated agenda. Just listen to that and say, oh, well, you got to wait and see. But nobody's ever allowed to look in the past and say, hey, well, this is what you did a week ago. This is what you did two years ago. Nobody's ever allowed to look at the fruits and say, yeah, we, we waited around before and found out that, you know, you were found wanting. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson, you know, your, your deeds have been weighed. They have been outlined. We have seen them come to fruition and they have been wanting. And it's time for us to do what Jesus taught us and shake the sand from our sandals and move along. We're not listening to you in more time. We're going to have to start doing this. If we want revival, then we are going to have to start weighing fruits. If we truly want to love people out of their sins, then we're going to have to start looking beyond the disingenuous arguments of our modern age and start standing on the principles of God, regardless what people say about us, regardless what is said on the surface level, regardless of name calling, regardless of what people call their institutions, because the idolatrous God of this age, it has designed it all to not be held accountable. But you can. You can hold it accountable by examining fruits. And we must realize that examining fruits are not the same things as listening to words. Now, revival was necessary for Nehemiah. He could not find success without revival. It is a spiritual thing in nature. And likewise, revival is necessary for us if we want to bless our neighbors and bring restoration to our society. Nehemiah's vision is a Jerusalem where none will live in shame, where people can enjoy life in the noble beauty of God's chosen city. And if we desire a restored society that elevates people from sin and shame, then we must fear God and stand on his principles. Revival can only happen if we serve God first, caring not for the approval or relevance in the world, but by seeking to preach the radiating gospel of Christ Jesus with its great and powerful light to cast out the darkness. We must have resolute conviction, not on shallow interpretation of laws, but instead on the eternal virtues of God that undergird all good laws. So let us close by saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. And on that note, God love you, and have a blessed day.